Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. God is still on the throne, and prayer changes things. Today, historian Bill Federer joins Josh Davis to look at the faith of some of the people who did miraculous things in the field of science, medicine, and innovation. Later this week, Micah Van Huss will look at the earth as it was, and Josh Davis will help us recognize the fake Jesuses that are in the world today. These programs are here each day because of your prayers and financial support. Please pray for Watchmen on the Wall and SWRC as we continue to take a stand for truth and share the information and encouragement that is needed now more than ever. If you'd like to learn more about how you can support the work of Watchmen on the Wall, please visit supportswrc.com or give us a call, 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Here's staff evangelist Josh Davis with today's guest, historian and author Bill Federer. I'm privileged to bring back on Watchmen on the Wall one of our favorite guests over the years, and his writings have inspired and encouraged and challenged so many people. We are blessed to have author and historian William J. Federer. Bill, we welcome you back to Watchmen on the Wall. Well, Josh, great to be with you. Today we're discussing your book, Miraculous Milestones in Science, Medicine, and Innovation, and the Faith of Those Who Achieved Them. Many people in today's world say that science is separate from faith. You have science on one side, reason on one side, and then faith and belief on the other side. How did some of the scientific pioneers who were great in science and innovation, and they were yet equally great Christians walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, how did they view the physical world around them? The founders of the scientific revolution were Christians, and they saw two books, the book of creation that shows the glory of God and the book of scriptures that tells the plan of redemption, how to know the God of creation. We're familiar with Nicholas Copernicus, and he is the one who was from Poland, and he discovered that the planets did not revolve around the earth, but instead the planets revolved around the sun. That was a big discovery. And uh, he says, the universe wrought for us by a supremely good and orderly creator. Copernicus said, to know the mighty works of God, to comprehend his wisdom and majesty and power, to appreciate in degree the wonderful workings of his law, surely all this must be a pleasing and acceptable mode of worship to the Most High, to whom ignorance cannot be more grateful than knowledge. Then he uh, said, oh, there's Galileo. And Galileo is one who said, mathematics is the language in which God has written the universe. And Galileo says, I give infinite thanks to God who has been pleased to make me the first observer of marvelous things. Right? So Galileo invented the first telescope used in astronomy. And Galileo said, the laws of nature are written by the hand of God in the language of mathematics. He said, God is known by nature in his works and by doctrine in his revealed word, right? So there's the two things. God is known by nature in his works and by doctrine in his revealed word. 
Another is Tycho Brahe, and he was the last major astronomer who observed the universe through the naked eye. And he says, the machine of heaven is divinely governed under a given law. And then he said, I noticed that a new and unusual star surpassing all others in brilliancy was quite evident to me that it had never been there, the star in the place in the sky. A miracle indeed, either the greatest of all that have occurred in the whole range of nature since the beginning of the world, or one certainly that is to be classed with those attested by the holy oracles, right? So the scripture. You have Kepler. I love him. He's the one who discovered the laws of planetary motion. And he said, I believe only and alone in the existence of Jesus Christ. In him is all refuge and solace. He said, science is the process of thinking God's thoughts after him. I love that one. Mm -hmm. So you you look at these different scientists, uh, Sir Isaac Newton, this quote, the most beautiful system of sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. Order and life in the universe could happen only by the willful reasoning of its original creator, whom I call the Lord God. So that's the scientific revolution. We're visiting with author and historian William J. Federer and discussing his book, Miraculous Milestones in Science, Medicine, and Innovation, and the Faith of Those Who Achieve Them. And we see that science and faith don't have to be separate. They can go hand in hand. And many people that I know say that I'm more academic. I'm going into science and things like that. I studied science some myself and realized exactly what some of these pioneers had to say. So going to the medical field and considering some of the Christian inventions and innovations in medicine, how did the Christian faith bring about hospitals? Yeah, so it's interesting that the history of hospitals did not start with Hinduism, where they believe in reincarnation, and if somebody's dying in the gutter, it's because they sinned in some supposed past life, and if you really care about them, you're going to let them suffer real good. So they'll be reincarnated in a higher state in their next life. So hospitals didn't start over in India. It didn't start in uh, Islam, where they believe in fate. If you're a poor, blind, crippled person, that's what Allah willeth, he willeth. And so you look at it, it started with Christians. And so Jesus says, I was sick and you visited me. And then whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. And he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And he saw the wounded person, poured in oil and wine, took him to an inn, and then gave the innkeeper money and said, I'll give you more when I come back. And so when Jesus died, rose again, and then you had the uh, apostles going throughout the world, and then in 325 A.D., Constantine uh, had the Roman Empire become Christian, and then people would make pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And after a long, long journey to the Holy Land, they would show up worn out. And so the decision was made that every place where people were making a pilgrimage to, there should be an infirmary to convalesce, to rest up, right, after your long thousand-mile journey from Europe over to the Middle East. And so they would have these churches, and they would have an infirmary. And the Latin word for pilgrim or traveler is hosp, H-O-S-P. That's where you get the word hospitality and hostel and hotel and, and hospital. And so then there were religious orders 
of people that would dedicate themselves to take care of these people going on pilgrimage. And First Timothy 5, it says, Let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old, which is 60, well reported for good works, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she's relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. And so you had these women that eventually turned into orders of nuns, and uh, you had one in Rome in 395 A.D. Her name was St. Fabiola, and she was brought to faith by St. Jerome, and she was wealthy, and so she gave money to build a hospital in Rome, and she cared for the sick herself. There was a St. Basil of Caesarea, and he had a poor house, a house to distribute food to the poor, a hospice, and a hospital in 370 A.D. And then you had the plague of Justinian in the year 541, and 15 million people died, 25% of Europe. And in Constantinople, there was a St. Samson the Hospitable, and he founded a hospital in his home, and the Emperor Justinian got sick, and Samson helped him to get better, and so he donated money to him, and this hospital went on in Constantinople for hundreds of years until Islam invaded. And then in 529 AD, you had these uh, monasteries in Europe building infirmaries and the first medical school. And so it was in the Benedictine Abbey, and they um, would have the beds and they would teach medicine. Then you had the Hotel de U, which is, means Hospital of God, and it's in Paris, and it's right next door to Notre Dame Cathedral. It's staffed to take care of those coming on pilgrimage. Now, when Islam comes along, the Muslim warriors would attack these places, and so they needed a security force, and they were called Knights of Hospitaller. And then Charlemagne, uh, in the year 800, becomes the Holy Roman Emperor, and he decrees that the hospitals that fell into disrepair should be restored. And then you have uh, universities starting. And these were all started out of churches. And Paris had the Sorbonne. Malone had a law school. Oxford had a school. Cambridge, Salamanca, Naples, and Toulouse. But then Salerno, Italy, is where the first medical school was in that Benedictine monastery. Now, why are we going through all, through all this? We're documenting that it was Christians that came up with healthcare. It's Christians that came up with hospitals. Then you had the bubonic plague. It was a plague that came from China. We're sort of familiar with mm. plagues that come from China. And so it was, came along with fleas on the donkeys that came across the Gobi Desert, the China Silk Road, came to the Levant, which is like, you know, the Holy Land. And then it went on ships and it got off at Constantinople and around the year um, 1331. And then you had 75 million people die in Europe. It was called the Black Death, 20% of Europe's population. Some estimates are, you know, up to even 200 million. Crops were left standing in the field, and there was a group of Christians. They were called Election Brothers. And people would throw the bodies of the dead out in the street. Well, these guys would collect the bodies and give them a Christian burial. And if they weren't dead yet, they would, you know, take care of them as sort of a hospice care. And this turned into uh, uh, hospitals. And then St. Vincent de Paul. And the Muslims would capture ships and imprison people and make them slaves. And, and Vincent de Paul was captured, and he was made a slave by the Muslims. And he witnessed to one of his slave master's wives. She eventually believed, and she nagged her husband to let Vincent de Paul go. And he went back to Europe, 
And he started an organization to raise money to ransom people who had been kidnapped and sold into Muslim slavery. But St. Vincent de Paul raised money to start a hospital. And the Queen of France donated money to help him do this. And so this is in the year 1607. He starts his hospitals. That's the same year that Jamestown, Virginia is being founded. And then you have these nuns are starting and staffing hospitals all across Europe. It was synonymous nuns, Catholic sister, right, a nun and healthcare. Matter of fact, it was so common that eventually the, the nurse's hat came from the nun's habit. You know how the, the mm-hmm. nuns had the particular headdress and the nurses would have that unique sort of hat. And so uh, you had hospitals starting all across Europe and then the uh, French Revolution starts. And they have these nuns lining up and taking them to the guillotine, chopping off their heads, chopping off their heads. They're singing Psalms 117, and there's one less person singing, one less. I mean, could you imagine the government forcing little nuns to give up their Christian faith? Sort of like when there was Obamacare, and they were suing these little sisters of charity, right? Sisters yes. of the poor, saying you got to support abortions and and, and they had to sue, took it up to the Supreme Court twice, but the government was wanting to force these, these nuns to give up their faith. There was a great plague of London in uh, 1665 and kills a, a quarter of the city of London, 100,000 people. And William Penn witnessed a group called the Quakers on their errands of mercy caring for the sick. And, of course, this is the same plague that caused Isaac Newton to leave London and go to the country, that's where he saw the apple fall from the tree and and, uh, discover the law of gravity. And then you had, in America, doctors would do home visits, and then Ben Franklin helped start the first hospital, and the cornerstone has a dedication, which was composed by Franklin. It says, in the year of Christ, 1755, this building by the bounty and government has uh, private persons for the relief of the sick and miserable. May the God of mercies bless the undertaking. And then you had different denominations starting hospitals. The Presbyterians started one in 1771. The Jews started one in 1811. Seventh-day Adventists, Baptists, Episcopalians, Lutherans, Methodists, they're all starting hospitals. It was Christians that were starting health care. And you had smallpox. More people died in the Revolutionary War of smallpox than died in battle. And Benjamin Rush, a Christian, is called the father of modern medicine. And he um, came up with, you know, a way of vaccinating people against smallpox. And then you, again, have the Catholics. There's a mother, Elizabeth Ann Seton, Sisters of Charity. And she started with her sisters, started the first hospital west of the Mississippi, the Daughters of Charity of St. Vincent de Paul in 1828. And then you had a cholera plague in, in the St. Louis. And, you know, in 1849, hundreds of thousands died of cholera. And these nuns were taking care of those with, with cholera. And, you know, every now and then one would die of cholera, but they're like, well, we're serving the Lord. It's sort of interesting because it cost nothing. They were doing it for free because it was a calling from God to take care of the poor. And so that once you de-Christianize and get rid of that, then it's just a profit motive. And so healthcare has changed from people taking care of people for free, but now it's, well, we got to have the insurance and so forth. Even the 10 largest hospitals in America were started uh, by churches. So I go through all this. Even during the Civil War, you had uh, nuns on the battlefield called the Angels of the Battlefield. Florence Nightingale said, what training can there be to compare with that of a Catholic nun? You had a, a scientist named Joseph Lister, and he was a Christian, and a Quaker Episcopalian. And he uh, dis- discovered that if you use this 
mixture that it would kill the bacteria. And so it got called Listerine. Mm. And uh, Joseph Lister told the medical students, it's our proud office to tend to the fleshly tabernacle of the immortal spirit in pursuit of this noble holy, holy calling. I wish you Godspeed. I am a believer in the fundamental doctrines of Christianity. So you can think of that the next time you gargle with Listerine. Yes. A Christian named Henry Dunant started the International Red Cross, and then a school teacher, Clara Barton, took that and started the American Red Cross. Henry Dunant, who started the International Red Cross, had also started a Young Men's Christian Association, a YMCA chapter in Switzerland. And he also showed up at the first Zionist Congress, where the Jews were planning on going back to the Holy Land. And so the founder of the Red Cross was in favor of Israel coming into a nation again. In Turkey, they didn't like the cross, and so Henry Dunant started the um, Red Crescent. And so today, they even have the ambulances in Turkey coming up with the Red Crescent. Well, that started from the Red Cross, Hmm. from Henry Dunant, who loved Israel. And here's Woodrow Wilson. Being members of the American Red Cross, this cross which these ladies bore here today is an emblem emblem of Christianity itself. It shows the irony of today the government coming into healthcare and saying, you have to lay aside your Christian conscience and do this abortion, do this transgendered surgery, do this euthanasia. We don't care about your conscience. You just be a conscienceless robot and do what the government says. Mm-hmm. Yet it's the Christian conscience that gave birth to healthcare and gave birth to hospitals in the first place. Absolutely. We're visiting with author and historian William J. Federer discussing his powerful book, Miraculous Milestones in Science, Medicine, and Innovation, and the Faith of Those Who Achieve Them. One of the greatest discoveries that mankind has ever had in innovations is the pioneering of literacy and books. How did God use the Israelites to pioneer literacy? And then how did the Christians take that and spread God's truth, the Bible, as a result of that? Yeah, so Egypt had 3,000 hieroglyphs. Only 1% of Egypt could read. Reading and writing was the scribe's secret knowledge. They actually kept the hieroglyphs complicated on purpose as job security. When Moses comes down the mountain, he doesn't just have the law, he has the law in a simple 22-character alphabet. First letter's the left, second letter Beth. So easy to learn, kids could learn it. Ancient Israel was the first literate population on planet Earth, and they were called people of the book. And why is this important? Because prophecies could be made for Jesus to fulfill, right? If you didn't have them written down, it's not in hieroglyphic little pictures. Oh, an alligator. No, it's literal words, and this is... God gives his word, and he doesn't want it interpreted differently. And so this was important for the Christian faith to have the Jews be a literate population. And you contrast this to, you know, Samaria had 1,500 cuneiform characters. China had 10,000 characters. They were just for court records for the the emperor and king and, and, and the Pharaoh and their scribes. But when Moses comes down the mountain, he has the law in a 22-character alphabet. So again, Israel, ancient Israel was the first literate population. And then you have the Muslims come in to Egypt and hold back the ships of papyrus. So there's a paper shortage in Europe. They write on expensive things like parchment, animal skin, and so fewer and fewer people write. And Europe becomes illiterate, and writing is just in Latin. It's preserved by the monks. But then the thought was that Latin is the holy language, and you don't want to have it in the common language of the people. 
But then when the Muslims are invading Turkey and invading Greece, the Greek scholars fled west with their Greek New Testaments. And so now in Europe, they're translating the Bible all the way back to the original Greek. And this reinterest in it is called the Renaissance. And then it gives birth to the Reformation. And one of the first things that they do is what? Print the Bible. And so Gutenberg invented the printing press. One of the first things he printed was a Bible. And then you have people teaching their children to read so they could read the Bible. And instead of you relying on the church hierarchy to tell you what it means, you can read it for yourself. And so it empowered the individual, and these individuals eventually embraced a covenant form of government, which was a congregation assembly versus the clergy-laity model, and that those were the ones that founded Massachusetts and gave birth to our form of government, which turned into the Constitution, right? It's we the people. The word federal is Latin for covenant. We're visiting with... Christian author and speaker, William J. Federer, and discussing his book, Miraculous Milestones in Science, Medicine, and Innovation, and the Faith of Those Who Achieved Them. Many sacrifices have been paid, a a great and a heavy price has been paid so that we can have our Bible in English, as you were just sharing with us, and we're so grateful for those who, even some like William Tyndale and others, who gave their lives so that we could have a copy of the Bible to read in English. And their innovation really cost them, in his case, his very life. Uh, There's so much more that we could talk about in the book. And by the way, we encourage you to get a copy by calling our ministry. You can reach us at 1-800-652-1144 or visit us online at swrc.com. Dot com. Who were some of the key black entrepreneurs in American history? In the book, I put lots of them. One is a Paul Cuffe, and he was a Quaker. Quakers were the first denomination to officially be against slavery. So the abolitionist movements just started from Christians. He was a Christian Quaker in the Philadelphia area, and he invented a tool to help make sales. And then it became, he became prosperous, and he started a shipping company. By the time he died, he was worth a half million dollars. He purchased 116 acres in Dartmouth, Massachusetts. He established the first racially integrated school in Westport, Massachusetts. He was the first African-American to meet a president, James Madison, in the White House. And here he is with a ship uh, business going back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean. Another is a... Um, Frank McWhorter, and he saves money and buys his freedom, and then he he founds a town. Another is Robert Gordon, and he was a slave, and he worked in a coal yard in Virginia, and his master let him keep the slack, which was the coal dust that he'd sweep off the floor and put in buckets and sell, and he saved up enough money to buy his freedom in the year 1846, travels to Ohio, and he invests money and starts a coal company where he'd buy it on the rivers, uh, boats, and then sell it. He became very successful. He helped supply coal to the Union forces during the uh, Civil War. There was an interesting lady named um, Biddy Mason. She was a slave, had three daughters, and her slave master was Robert Smith, a Mormon, and, and they moved from Utah to California. She could have gotten free, but when her husband wanted to move to Texas, she didn't want to, and so... There was a white man, Charles Owens, that helped bring legal action to get Biddy her freedom. And uh, after a fierce court battle, Biddy Mason won her freedom. And Charles Owens, the the white person, 
married her daughter. So Biddy worked as a midwife, delivered hundreds of babies. Uh, smallpox epidemics hit. She risked her life to care for the multitude, saving her money. She purchased two estates, making her one of the first black women to own property in Los Angeles. She bought more properties, leased them out commercially. As the city grew, her properties appreciated in value, were resulting in her amassing a fortune of $300,000. 1872, along with her son-in-law, Charles Owens, she organized the city's first black church, the first African Methodist Episcopal Church of Los Angeles, uh, near her home on Spring Street. Just an amazing story. Another one, Samuel Wilcox. He was a boat steward on the Ohio River, and then he started a wholesale business in the 1850s, and he founded a pickling company and a preserve company. He was a Christian, and he helped with the AME churches, and he started a business with $25,000 and made nearly $140,000 in annual sales. Uh, these are fascinating stories of individuals that just applied themselves and, and worked hard. You had a Frederick Patterson started a car company, sort of the same time that Henry Ford started Model T. You had an Anne Malone. She was one of America's first and most prominent African-American businesswomen. And she developed uh, Poro College, uh, which focused on cosmetics for black women. She is the first black female millionaire in the United States, reported $14 million in assets in 1920. Madam C.J. Walker, and she was another self-made millionaire. She did, developed the line of beauty and hair products. She says, I had to make my own living and my own opportunity. Don't sit down and wait for opportunities to come. You have to get up and make them. And then she says, I want you to understand your first duty is to humanity. I want others to look at us and see that we care not just about ourselves, but for others. And then she says, it's pretty hard for the Lord to guide you if you haven't made up your mind which way you want to go. So these are just fascinating stories. They're inspiring of people that overcame tough, terrible conditions and applied themselves with faith and courage and became successful. Friends, we want to encourage you to pick up a copy of this book for yourself because you will be inspired and educated on the worldview that many of these Christian innovators have had over the course of American history and world history as well. Bill Federer, it's just been a delight to have you with us today. Thank you again for being on Watchmen on the Wall. Thank you, Josh. Miraculous Milestones is a book by Bill Federer that looks at special achievements in science, medicine, and innovation and the faith of those who achieve them. This book is excellent for homeschoolers, families, really anyone who wants to know the real history behind the faith of those who truly did achieve miraculous milestones. Order the book, Miraculous Milestones by Bill Federer today when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or you can order at our website, swrc.com. Bill Federer will be speaking at our Columbus, Ohio conference, October 26th through the 28th. Come here, Bill, along with Jonathan Kahn, Micah Van Huss, Donald Perkins, and many, many others. Register today by visiting the events section of our website, swrc.com. Tomorrow, Micah Van Huss begins a look at giants, dinosaurs, and the firmament. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station by downloading our SWRC mobile app or by subscribing to our daily Watchmen on the Wall podcast. 
Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and has been supported for over 90 years by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com. That's swrc.com.